Welcome to the Riverwood Chapel podcast. We're so excited you're here. Please check out our other content and video uploads at riverwoodchapel.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, Riverwood. I'm glad you are here uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to start with some poetry. And uh, this is the inspiration right here. Roses are red, violets are blue. And I asked the staff this week to finish that phrase, like channel your inner poet to finish that. Um, So here's what they came up with. We'll see if you think that there's some creativity here. Roses are red, violets are blue. I am tired and so are you. All right, somebody needs a vacation there. Roses are red, violets are blue. I have no idea what to tell you. Come on now. We can do a little bit better than that, right? How about this one? Roses are red, violets are blue. The browns win consistently. A dream come true. Yes, there's some poetry. Roses are red. That much is true. But violets are purple, not even blue. Come on. Really? I mean... Roses are red, violets are blue. What is that smell? Is it me or is it you? (laughs) Roses are red, violets are blue. There's a yellow film on my car. A chew. There's some creativity. Roses are red, violets are blue. Preachers are long-winded, especially... I don't think we need to say more of this. I think we're done. All right, so you might be wondering, why, why, why are we talking about poetry this morning? We're talking poetry because we, this summer, are going to be in Psalm 119. Um, And so for those uh, who like to take notes and uh, who like to think and write questions, we provide these booklets. If you want one, just put your hand up. Our, Our host would love to put one in your hand. Um, We have plenty to share, and basically it just tells you where we're going to be in the summer, and it has the scriptures on the other side of the page. Uh, The rest is up to you to write something if you so wish, or maybe draw a picture of something, or write your own poetry. I don't know what, but may this be a tool that you might want to use. All right, so the question is, why are we studying poetry? And here's one of the answers. One-third, one-third, catch that, one-third of the entirety of the Bible is poetry. One-third, large sections, the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, large, large portions are poetry. The, The Lord is using that in his word to communicate to his people. And so this week I've been asking people uh, the question, why don't we like poetry? Now, I've been in coffee shops, I've been uh, in large groups and small groups, and that is the question I've been asking people, why don't we like poetry? Because I am guessing, as you are getting ready for vacation, you're not buying a book of poetry to go to the beach with. Probably not. I see people nodding, like, no. So why don't we like poetry? And there's really three kinds of areas of conversation. Uh, The first is this. We don't like to make that kind of investment in poetry. Uh, One person said this. Poetry is not the most direct way to communicate. Of course it isn't. 
And so many times, poetry leads us to word pictures and metaphors and maybe uh, these ideas that are maybe a little more poetic. And in a world where we like sound bites, 280 characters in a tweet, we like 30-second commercials, just tell me what I need to know, tell me what I need to know. We don't have time because we are very busy, 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 busy people. We don't have time to slow down and smell the roses. Just tell me what I need to know about the roses so I can move on to the next thing. So that's one area of conversation. The other is this, that we are people who don't like to express emotions. See, poetry will do that. Poetry will invite you into feel something. And we're like, I don't know about that. That sounds like something someone else might enjoy, not me. We'd rather not. And so poetry draws us into emotions of either anger or frustration or love or whatever it might be, and that is just maybe not our cup of tea. All right, here's the third area of why we don't like poetry. This is the one I think is probably the most true, is that we really have a fear. We have a fear we're not going to get it. We have a fear like, oh, this person has put so much creativity into this, and all of a sudden you're like, I have no idea what they're saying. And so because we are fearful that we might not get it, we don't engage with it at all. And so we'd rather, rather not. And so did I describe you? I'll close my eyes. Did I describe you? I want you to feel at ease. Um, we're going to do this together this summer. We're going to be walking through Psalm 119, one psalm. That's it. 176 verses, I might add, but one psalm. And I want you to feel at ease. We're going to do this together. We're going to engage in God's word together. We're going to hopefully get it together. We're going to overcome fears. We're even going to allow this psalm to tap into maybe something we might even feel um, this summer. Who's ready for this? Who's excited about poetry now? Hopefully... Hopefully a few more. All right, so let me ask another question as we get started. Why do we really need biblical poetry in our lives? I'm, I'm going to give you an answer that a professor gave to me. So now this is going back to my time in seminary, and I sat under an Old Testament professor. His name was Willem van Gimmeren from the Netherlands. A very short man, very distinctive um, accent, and um, if you're into someone who likes to read commentaries on the Bible, that would be an explanation of certain books of the Bible, he wrote a fabulous commentary on the book of Psalms in the Expositor's Commentary Series. And so the man is well, well versed in poetry. And so you sit in this class with him, and you really start to love it more and more. Out of his commentary, I mean, this is what he says about biblical poetry. The Psalms challenged the Western mind with a view of God so magnificent and so grand that the interpreter is often humbled and awestruck. All right, so that's my professor. And what he's tapping into is something that we have to admit as we are going to enter into this series. This, it's this engagement right here. The Psalms challenge the, and then he says it, the Western mind 
We are the Western mind. What does that mean? That means that by default, we come to things of skepticism, scientific proof, these things of, of rational thought processes. I need to examine and see it and prove it to me. And that's how our default is. Let me say it a different way. It would be much like um, looking at this vase of flowers and coming up very close to it and saying, okay, I'm going to look at this rose here, this petal here, and this petal. Now I'm going to exam, examine this. What's the definition of this? What's going on here? What's the tense of that verb? And all of these things. And we pick it apart and we pick it apart. But in the end, what do we have? We really don't have much of anything. That's not poetry. And that's what my professor is trying to warn us at. As we get started, that we're not the people just picking it apart and doing word studies, and how many times is that word used? That will be missing the point. All right, so what is the point? The point is, much like flowers, is to step back and to appreciate. Behold the flowers. Maybe get close and smell the flowers to see them for their beauty, not just fly up close and try to pick it apart. See, that's going to be our temptation this summer, is to get real close and to do something like that. And Dr. Van Gemmeren has something for all of us to say, just be careful. Be careful. Appreciate and behold uh, the poetry that we are about um, to engage with. All right, so let's begin, and let's begin in this spot where we always ask the question. Whenever we start something brand new, we always ask the question like, well, what is really the, the context, the time frame of when this was written? We do that with every genre, whether we're in the Old Testament or in the New. And so here is a, a handy timeline for us to talk about where the book of Psalms falls. Here it is. And you're thinking, wait a second. We talked about Jeremiah before. All right, but there is some connection here. Uh, many of the Psalms, there's a very wide expanse of time that they were written. Some, as you see some of the descriptions of Psalms, they were written by David, King David. And so that would be way left, King David. Um, others were written by people, uh, the sons of Korah or Asaph, <clears throat> Some of them have no delineation of when they were written, but we can tell by some of the language that they were written probably much later, maybe even some of them written while people were in exile in Babylon. And then maybe even some that were written after, a post-exilic kind of psalm. And so the psalms have a great expanse of time. But as I read commentators, many of them land in this kind of idea that Psalm 119 probably was written in a time of exile. In a moment where uh, they were taken away into captivity. It, it fits that description. Think about people who, who have nothing. Remember, they're in, they've took, taken this 500-mile trek to Babylon. They have nothing. They are under a government that is not favorable to them. They have neighbors who most likely see them as a threat for resources. And now they're just trying to squeak out some kind of existence. And so it's in this 
moment when everything has been stripped away that you then find out what is most important. What is most important when there is nothing else to cling to? That is the setting of this psalm. And so this, this, the writer of 119 had a lot of time on his hand to really walk through and think through and reflect. The longest chapter in the Bible is born out of this setting of captivity. And maybe one that we find something that resonates in us as well as, as kindred spirits, as people, as Christ followers who now live in 2022, who live in a world where maybe we feel out of place. Where do we fit in this whole conversation of, of a government and neighbors and I mean, the New Testament describes us as wanderers in this world, sojourners, where this really isn't our home, capital H, but a place that we're moving through. Psalm 119, I think, has a lot to speak to us as well. All right, with this expansive beginning, let's read some poetry. Let's open up to Psalm 119. We're going to read the first eight verses. This would be called a strophe. That's a technical term to talk about delineation in poetry. So the very first strophe, eight verses long. Let's see what it says. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart, and when I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. All right, there's a couple of features that I want to notate as we begin. The first one is to answer the simple question, why is this psalm so long? Here's the answer. There are 22 strophes of eight verses. Why 22? Each strophe really highlights a letter of the Hebrew Bible. And so it starts from the beginning and goes all the way to the end, all 22 letters. And not only that, but at the very beginning of every verse is the same letter in that strophe. And so uh, as we would be reading Hebrew, we'd be reading from right to left, and we'd look down verse 1, it'd start with the letter Aleph, A. And then verse 2, Aleph, and Aleph, and Aleph, and Aleph. Then you get to the next strophe. All of those words would start with the second letter, Bait, 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 Bait. And so it, it is a beautiful thing to look at if we could read Hebrew. For us as English uh, speakers, we look at this and we're like, ah, we don't. So that part is, is lost on us. But let me tell you, it was a thing of beauty to even look at Psalm 119. And think of all the time it would take to start every line with the same letter. Think about our challenge when we would get down to letters like Q and X. It's, it's a really incredible piece of art just in that alone. 
The second piece you need to note and, and realize is that there are lots of synonyms happening in Psalm 119 for God's word. Here they are. They are law and testimonies and ways and precepts and statutes and commandments and rules. You'd be hard-pressed to find one verse in all 176 that does not have one of those words in it. I'll flip to one randomly. Psalm 119, 101. I hold back my feet from every ill way in order to keep your word. Oh, there's another one. I'll flip to another one. Uh, 134. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. You, you get the idea. Every verse, 176, is including one of those words. And here's the temptation. As a pastor with a Western mind, I am so tempted to fly in so close and say, oh, let's look at that word precept. And let me tell you how many times that word is used. And, oh, when we talk about law, let's talk about how Old Testament law and all that and statutes and all of these things. And I can hear my professor in my ear saying, Cole, don't do it. Don't do it. You're, you're, you might be tempted to fly that close and do something like that, but you'd be missing the point because all you'd have in your hand is a lot of factoids that the poet never really was intending to be seen. You see, what the, the poet is wanting us to realize is like, behold, look how I can talk about God's word. I'm sometimes going to use the word testimonies, and sometimes I'm going to use the word law, and sometimes I'm going to use the word precepts. Don't go too deep into that. Just behold. God's word is magnificent. It's wonderful. Take time to, to take in all of that. All right, so now we get to the first eight the first strophe, and we do want to make some observations. Like, what does the author want us to see? What does the author want us to feel? What does he want us to notice? And so what I want to do is I want to point out three flowers, three roses, and all of them are together. Uh, each one of them is connected to the other rose. And there's going to be three statements, and we're going to glue them all together to notice something of magnificence about these first eight verses. All right, so the very first rose I see in this text is this, that is simply what I call the happy way of life. The happy way of life. Now, why do I say that? I say that because the very first word in the first verse and the second is the word blessed. That's all that word means. Happy. Happiness. It's interesting that the psalmist in Psalm 1, verse 1, starts in that same way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Happy. The happy. Happiness. Here's something really interesting. As we would then go from the Old Testament into the New Testament, into a different language, the Greek equivalent of that is a word that Jesus picked up on and used in the Sermon on the Mount. He would say things like, Blessed is the, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. On and on. Jesus is speaking about happiness. And, but not the version of happiness that is fleeting, 
Like you go to the gas pump and you're like, I'm not happy. Or all of this inflation or all of the things of who's in office and who's not in office and all of the things of our own possessions and accumulation of wealth and happiness, happiness. No, 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 no. When we see that word in the scriptures, it's, it's, it's talking about a, a deeper contentment of happiness at the level of the soul. Remember, this is a psalm born out of having nothing. You have nothing to cling to. You have nothing to put your name to. So what is of most importance? And so there is a happy way of life. Now, I use those intentional words because the next thing I notice is that this word of life is also reflected in these first eight verses. Why do I say life? Life is seen in the words where you talk about walking. It's not just a, a point in time. Like, I am happy right now because someone gifted me with a present. No, he's talking about being happy for a journey. We see that all over the first eight verses as the, the person who is walking. I mean, this is a culture that walked everywhere. But walking is what you did. It was so the metaphor they would connect with life. We are walking, looking for the happy, happy things of this life. Now connect the next word. There's a path that you will walk. There's a way. He even says it uh, in verse 1. The ways that are blameless in verse 5. The ways that are steadfast. We are all searching for these ways to find happiness. That's true about anyone. People here in the front row, people in downtown Kent and Acorn Alley, I would walk up to them and I'd say, are you searching for what is going to make you happy in this life? Everybody says yes, yes. It's, it's just born into us that we are looking for the happy way of life. And the first rose, it, it points this out, and it really it then comes to a question for all of us to wrestle with is, where are we finding this happy way of life? Now, we have some more challenges put before us in 2022 than they did in the Babylonian captivity. Why do I say that? We live in the land of plenty. I'm talking to people who have plenty, lots of things for the most part. And so we have insulated ourselves with all of our wealth and, and toys and things in our lives. And so we don't necessarily feel that we are looking for something to cling to because we have other things. That's a challenge. Let's just notate that. The other thing that we have to realize is that we live in a world where there are lots of paths being put before us. Walk down this path. You'll find happiness. And there are some long paths that people want us to walk down. The path of stuff. Just keep walking down. Just get bigger and better, the more newer, and just keep yourself entertained. Or the path of politics. Oh, man. Just keep walking down. You'll find true happiness there and, and feeling, and that's where... Or, or maybe our culture says, you need to find your sexual identity in that. And so let me tell you what you should feel. And so walk down that path. 
And so all of these paths that we have before us to walk down, because we live in a culture that is feeding us so many messages, can be hard and can be confusing. So how do we hear the right voice? All right, so flower number one is just the reality is that we are looking for that happy way of life. I know you are. I know I am. Flower number two, rose number two, picks up on this and adds into this. Out of the first eight verses, here's something to notice. That the happy way of life is found in God's word. You can't miss it. Notice the scriptures, the, all of the verbs. Now I'm looking at verbs connected to all of those synonyms. Walking in the law of the Lord. Keeping his testimonies. Keeping his precepts. Keeping your statutes fixed on your commandments. Learning your rules. Keeping your statutes. It's like rhythmically making a very, very strong point to the one who is taking in this piece of poetry. And so, again, it's very important for those who are in captivity. They have nothing to cling to. They have nothing that's giving them hope, per se. So where are they finding it? And the writer is finding it in the Word of God. There is passion in the Word of God for the writer. There is an unyielding commitment Notice how he says, I'm going to keep your word. Keep it. And another word I throw out there is that he loves God's word. Let's pause right there and ask another question. Do you love God's word? Do you love God's word? As, as it's being described here. The thing that you have to have in your life for sustenance and direction. The, the happy way of life is found in God's Word. I know a lot of times people have guilt in this area. And I always want to be encouraging. Because sometimes people are like, well, I don't know how to read God's word. I don't know where to start. I'm not quite sure. By the way, I always tell people, let's start right at the center of the story in the Gospel of John. If you're always looking like, where can I start to read? In the New Testament, start with that. But I want you to be encouraged that maybe this is a reminder to get into God's word. And my encouragement to everyone is let's read God's word more this upcoming week than we did last week. Now think about that. If, we, if 600 people can read God's word more than they did last week, it's a major win. Why? Because now we're hearing from the Lord. The Bible is the way that God reveals his very specific will and plan for humanity. In the brokenness of this world, in the sinfulness I find in myself, this is what is going to give direction. Not the paths of the American way, not the, the paths of what American culture is going to say. This is, right here, the happy way of life is found in God's word. There's a couple go-to verses I, I always bring up, and uh, these are not new. But if you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, it talks about how all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training. 
Then there's the verse out of Hebrews that says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. I mean, this is why God's word is so important, because it goes right to the issues of the heart. Do we believe it? Do we believe that it does? The happy way of life is found in God's word. That's flower number two. But the third flower, really, you, you can't look at Psalm 1 through 8 here and, and not see the third flower. The third flower is really, really important to notice. That the happy way of life is found in God's word that leads us to him. That's the point. If you want to, like, did I get the first eight verses? This is getting it right here. The happy way of life is found in God's word that leads us to him. You see, in the text, you can't miss the subject of the poem. It certainly is centered around the synonyms. You see that. But in the end, the path is not because we can then become smarter people. That's not the point. The point isn't that you have more knowledge. Like, I can recite all the books of the Bible in order. That's great. That's fine. But that's not the point of what's going on in God's word. The, the rules and the precepts and the statutes and the commandments are given so that we will enter into a relationship with him. That's the point. The happy way of life is found in God's word that leads us to him. When you read God's word, it's like an invitation coming off the page saying, trust me, walk with me. You're broken in a broken world. Come, I have, I have answers. Enter into a, a relationship with me. I, I'm the, the one who cares deeply about the human heart. Find another path in this world that is going to answer that question. I'm the one who cares deeply about justice and righteousness. I am the one who gives counsel to my creation. I'm the one who, who sees you in your struggle. And what you are really wrestling with. I'm the one who's going to guard you from shame as you come and you Walk with me, because I'm going to take your shame. I'm the one who will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's interesting in Psalm, in this first eight verses, it ends with praise coming off of the page. I am the one who deserves your praise. This is our God. He wants us to come and and find this happy way of life in him. Have you? Have you? It's very easy to come into church and churches and sit in blue chairs and miss it. It's very common, actually, to come, because many times we come to churches and we sit in blue chairs to make ourselves feel good, or I'm coming because of somebody else, and I wish this was over. Why are we studying poetry? I mean, all of these things. But the point is to be confronted with the word of God to say, have you really found this happy way of life that leads to a relationship with God? And for us, it's through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who is 
Let's remind ourselves the way. He is the path. We enter into a relationship with him. The, the scriptures point us to a God who loves us that much. Do you know him that way? As we begin this series, that's kind of the beginning question. Have you entered into a relationship with him through his word where your soul has found true happiness? That is my, my prayer for you. And if you haven't, if you're still asking questions and you're like, I don't know if I have, we would love to come alongside and point you into that direction. It's, it's simple. By faith, we believe that Jesus died and rose again for my brokenness, my sin, so that I could have eternal life and life right now, in the here and now, that looks different. Um, he's the one who loves us so much that he has provided that. May that be the beginning of this series, uh, an engagement with the God who Psalm 119 is really about. Do you know him? We're going to move into a time of communion after I pray that highlights this relationship. Um, But let me pray for us as we enter into communion. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word, as we saw from Isaiah, does not return void. Your, your word goes out and it challenges. Even poetry goes out and challenges us to think, to feel, to engage in different ways. I pray that your word would do exactly that this morning. For those who are here, maybe even visiting, some who are maybe just casually who know you, uh, may we enter into a deeper relationship with you, maybe for the first time, and that's simply admitting that we're broken and we're in need of a Savior. Maybe today is that day that Psalm 119 is pointing us to the one who can help us. Thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.